Welcome to the sermon podcast of Christ Community Church in Springfield, Missouri. Christ Community features life-giving, verse-by-verse teaching from the Bible. If you would like more information about CCC, you can visit our website at cccspringfield.org. We trust these messages will challenge and encourage you in being a faithful follower of Christ. this story before, but it uh, kind of bears repeating. When I came to Christ, I was in the ninth grade, and uh, there was a lot of zeal and not a lot of knowledge. I remember going uh, home. In the evenings, you know, my dad, when he got home from work, he had a particular format that he would do that lasted about two hours. Uh, by the time he cleaned up and, and ate and watched Walter Cronkite, you just didn't interrupt any of those if you wanted to talk to my dad, okay? So um, I had just come to Christ. I was so excited that uh, I went over, and while my dad was sitting there watching Walter Cronkite, unannounced, I just went and turned the TV off. <laughs> He's looking at me like, what are you doing and I said, I go, Mom, Dad, i got to ask you something. I said, if, if you were to die right now, do you know whether you'd be in heaven or not? And my mom's ironing, and she immediately just starts crying. And my dad goes, nope. Well, I didn't know what to say after that. <laughs> I'm like, I don't know. <laughs> I was in ninth grade. It was something lame. I know it was. And not long after that, I had invited my mom, my brother and I invited her to come to this crusade. This guy came through town, and she trusted Christ. Her heart was warming up to the things of the Lord. And uh, now my dad was another story. Uh, he would never come to the church unless there was something I was doing. I was singing or speaking, then he might, he might come. But uh, otherwise, he, he didn't have anything to do it. In fact, um, when uh, he had had a heart attack, one of our pastors from our church went to visit him, said, uh, walked to the room, said, hey, Tracy, can I talk to you about the Lord? And he goes, no. <laughs> he, just, he just didn't want to talk to him. And as a, you know, if, if, if you've come to Christ and you're like one of the only ones in your family, you know that family is some of the hardest people to talk to. And that was the way it was with me, with my dad. He'd had another heart attack in 93, and uh, they lived in West Virginia at the time, were retired, and Janet and I were laying in our bed here in Springfield, and it was on Saturday morning, and uh, it wasn't an audible voice, but I just knew the Lord wanted me to go to West Virginia. Uh, you know, again, you know, I'm not one about, it has visions or things like that, but I just knew it. And it wasn't, I said something to Janet, two minutes later, my uncle calls from West Virginia, he goes, I think you need to get to West Virginia. I'm like, holy mackerel, I mean, that couldn't be any clearer. So I, I called the elders, uh, and I said, hey, uh, is it possible you could get somebody to cover for me tomorrow and I could uh, run to West Virginia? He goes, well, sure. So I go to the hospital room, and I go, Dad? And he goes, I know why you're here. So we began to talk about the gospel. We prayed. Um, we affirmed his commitment to Christ. My mom is just bawling, and the next day he died. The power 
of the gospel. I'm convinced of it. And I've seen it multiple times in situations that I've been in where I've seen people's lives turn around. And when you see it firsthand or you've had it happen to you, uh, you know that what Paul is talking about here in Romans is the real thing. Verse 13, I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that I have often intended to come to you, but thus far have been prevented in order that I may reap some harvest among you as well as among the rest of the Gentiles. Paul really was prevented from getting to Rome. He had wanted to go before he did, but the Lord just didn't allow it. And we all face circumstances that are out of our control, and they disrupt our plans. There was a special report from the program This American Life and it follows the lives of several people uh, currently living what they unequivocally call Plan B. Host Ira Glass expounds his thoughts uh, on the informal poll and seemingly, seemingly universal reality that these hundred people that were polled were asked that if they are still living Plan A, that they first formulated as a young adult. And he goes, raise your hand if you're still living plan A. And only one person out of the hundred raised their hand. Because life had changed so much. And that one person was 23 years old, by the way. Right? Could it be that part of living our lives in purpose and, and, and contentment is learning to be faithful to God in plan B. Because the fact is, all of us are living plan B, right? Because of all the transitions and changes that we've seen in our lives. Paul said his purpose was to go to Rome to reap a harvest, or some translations say, to see fruit. Now, fruit has a multiplicity of meanings. First, there's the character traits of the fruit of the Spirit in Galatians 5. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. There's also the obedience that comes from holy living. That's a fruit. In Romans 6 it says, but now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves to God, the fruit you get leads to sanctification and its end, eternal life. Another kind of fruit is the increase of people who come to know the Lord. Uh, Romans 16, it says, Likewise, greet the church that is in their house. Greet my beloved Epinatus, who is the first fruits of Achaia to Christ. Now, some of us grew up in strict religious backgrounds. And when you hear fruit... You can often, and I, a lot of Christians this way, interpret it as some kind of subcultural Christian standard according to what you know, denomination you grew up in. That's the fruit of holiness, right? We really have to rid ourselves of that kind of reasoning, okay? That replaces biblical instruction with a kind of denominational or subcultural code. But if you've grown up in church, you know exactly what I'm talking about. You know, it could have been music or 
drinking or some all kinds of things. It's, it's not to say that those, you shouldn't attend to some things. It's just to say that fruit has a lot of different colors and shades, and it's not just that. But there are some people who think that if you're really walking with God and holy and fruitful, you got to do that one thing or else, you know, you don't have it. This fruit or harvest Paul speaks of can be experienced by Jews and Gentiles, those that are religious, those who are irreligious. God can work in all people. That's what he means by that, the rest of the Gentiles. Verse 14, I am under obligation both to Greeks and to barbarians, both to the wise and the foolish, so I'm eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. He says, I am under obligation. There's actually three I am phrases within this passage. Not only I am under obligation, but I am eager in verse 15, and then I am not ashamed in verse 16. Now, when we fail to remind ourselves, getting back to the one in verse 14, that I am bound or I'm under obligation, when we fail to remind ourselves of important obligations, I think we can succumb to maybe what's sentimental or maybe even just the urgent. It's a reason why wedding ceremonies are so important to a marriage. Because I remember this public commitment. I do have a sense of obligation here, right? It's why baptism is so important to the new Christian. I am reminded of my relationship with God, and there are some responsibilities that go along with that, right? Reminds me of Paul's words right after his conversion on the road to Damascus. He said, so he, trembling and astonished, said, Lord, what do you want me to do? Then hmm. the Lord said, Arise, go into the city. You'll be told what you must do. Paul understood there's going to be certain obligations, things I, I need to do here. And, and they might even be unpleasant, but I'm willing to do them. Immediately, Paul understood, okay, Christ is Lord and I'm under him. Right? And Part of that was Paul's willingness to preach the gospel. And in fact, he says in verse 15, he does so with eagerness. And he also adds that he was willing to suffer and die. Acts 21, he says, for I am ready not only to be imprisoned, but even to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. And so you understand that, that this relationship with Christ, it's not just doing what I feel, but it's doing what he's called me to do. And because I love him, I'm willing to do that. I have this relationship with him. And Paul even took it further. I, I feel obligated or, or indebted to do this. And I, I love seeing you in action as we saw this week with many of you coming to help us load up some lunches for school children. We partner with a couple other churches in town. And uh, 
And about a month ago or so, many of you showed up to help us put socks and new shoes on some school kids who couldn't afford them. That was awesome. Or this past Sunday where we worked in these homes where mostly they're single moms trying to get a home that they could own themselves and we're fixing that up. I love that. And I know you're doing that because you want to. Hopefully you're not doing it. I don't think anybody here is guilting one another about doing that. But we want to do that. And we feel a sense of, when I say obligation has a negative connotation, but it shouldn't. It's like, no. I mean, there are things you do for your spouse because they're your spouse. And you, you sense an obligation to do that, but you do it willingly. You do it lovingly. I love the words of Spurgeon. Oh, it is grand to find a man so little entangled that he can go where God would have him go and go at once. Obligation, as I've already pointed to, is actually translated debtor in some other passages. And Paul's feeling of debt was really a a voluntary response to his calling. It's a deep sense, in his case, of accountability to the fate of Greeks and and, and non-Greeks. I mean, it's a weak servant who serves only when they feel like it. And Paul made this serving personal by targeting, it says, the Greeks and the barbarians. Now, the Greeks of the day included people from many lands who were educated in Greek learning and trained in Greek culture. And that swept the land prior to the Roman Empire. Highly sophisticated, they looked upon themselves as you know, the, the most intelligent versus barbarians who simply weren't familiar with Greek culture. Okay, it doesn't mean wild-eyed savages. That's not what we mean by barbarian, but simply they didn't know the Greek culture. And so what Paul is saying is that people that are sophisticated, people that are unsophisticated, and then elsewhere, um, he says wise and, and foolish, We all are in need. We all face a spiritual death outside of Christ. And so I'm obligated to minister to those folks. Wise and foolish, educated, uneducated, sophisticated, simple, privileged, underprivileged. I remember um, in high school, we would go to rural areas of North Carolina and we would do these VBSs. There'd be a team of four of us teenagers that would run an entire VBS for these rural churches. So we had several teams. We went out to several churches. And then you would go early on a Sunday, and you would maybe have lunch with some of the members of the church. And one uh, church we went to, these people invited us over. And, I mean, I grew up outside of Cleveland, fairly middle class, okay, but here, it was very rural and very poor. And the, the one house that we were having lunch in, uh, this guy was chewing tobacco during the lunch and spitting it into a platoon that was sitting there, pretty gross. And then the, the, the food, you know, it was very simple, fried chicken, but, you know, they would have us eat stuff, bowls that were dirty, and this jar of pickles they wanted us to eat out of. It was just gnarly, and I'm, you know. 
But I, I remember distinctly, I'll never forget this, just thinking, no, wait, 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 wait a minute, wait a minute. Because I remember we were kind of went through lessons before we went. This is what they talked about, about, you know, uh, serving others. And, and we were told, whatever's put in front of you, you eat, you never complain. It's like, oh, so this is what this means. But it wasn't, it wasn't hard to do because, and it wasn't because I felt like I was better than these people. I wasn't. And I realized they're in need just like anybody else is in need. And it was like, it was, I remember God just kind of giving me, it's, it's, it's a privilege to be here to share the gospel with them. There, there, there's something sometimes that gets into middle-class evangelicalism that thinks it's below them to, you know, go to a lower class of people. And it's just wrong, and it's arrogant. Um, and I know some churches that that's all they want to minister to is kind of an upper-class kind of person. Um, that wasn't Paul. I'm just going to love whoever's in front of me. I'm going to minister to whoever is in front of me. I'm going to give the gospel to anyone without a sense of arrogance. I mean, listen, Elon Musk, Warren Buffett, just as needy spiritually as a homeless person on Commercial Street. Right? So whoever it is, whoever's in front of me, that's who I'm going to love. Notice the tandem of obligation and eagerness here. Paul was keen to deliver the gospel. And in a world where the emphasis is on making the gospel attractive with elaborate stage shows, Paul was the one eager. It wasn't he wanted people to see the show, but he's saying, I'm not ashamed, and I'm eager because of the power of the gospel. But he says elsewhere, remember, it's a stumbling block to the Jews and a folly to Gentiles. That's a way of saying not everybody is going to like this, right? I remember, um, and I'm, again, I know I've probably shared this story before too, so just, again, nod your head and say, oh, it's the first time we've heard that. Um, but oh, I was at a... Um, if I remember, I was a Hungarian Reformed church. And we were asked, there was a friend of mine who knew some lady there, and they wanted us to come and, and preach. And it was a, me and another friend, and his dad was the pastor of the church that I attended. And we went to this church, and the response as we gave the gospel was, I mean, there was 25 people accepting Christ. And it was pretty pretty cool to see, but the pastor or priest, whatever he was called, was sitting in the back, and he was just kind of shaking. You could see he was really livid. He's just doing this. And when we were praying with these people, he just sprung up, started screaming at us, and said, get out! I don't want you in here! And kicked us out of the church. <laughs> Why? Because of the gospel. We didn't say anything to you know, about Hungarian reform. We weren't saying anything about them. It was just the gospel. And it wasn't something they embraced. But that was a privilege 
because we could see those people respond so eagerly to the gospel. It's a stumbling block to religious and irreligious people. And yet the church world today, in many circles, is constantly seeking to wrap the gospel with false claims of some kind of external promises. They, they want to make it as non-offensive as possible. Now, listen, I'm not advocating being a jerk. I'm not advocating being rude. But by itself, the naked gospel is offensive. Okay? Paul was not jailed and beaten because he promised Jews and Gentiles healing and wealth and promised land on this side of heaven because that wasn't the message. It was a calling of we are all fall short. We need to repent of our sin and the sense of calling it what God calls it and, and come to Christ for forgiveness. That doesn't play well with people who are self-righteous and who think that they are good enough. This is not in the Greek, but I'm pretty sure Paul was not wearing um, $1,000 sneakers and flying on a private jet either, okay? Uh, one guy I went to school with in graduate school uh, recently had his multiple pictures of his accommodations in a private jet as he was going to a ministry event to speak. And I'm just like, dude, what, why would you do that? Not why would you go, I mean, it could have been given to him as a gift, whatever, but I'm not advocating ministers be poor, but being eager for the gospel is not about the personal benefits, right? But it's about meeting the needs of the spiritually dead. The fact is, Paul was not the poster child for the cool and the hip, Okay? Uh, tradition tells us he was short and he was not an attractive man. He didn't have the outer appearance as his strong suit, but he pursued his mission of propagating the gospel with passion and dedication. He obviously didn't arrive to Rome first class on a jet, he came as a shipwrecked prisoner. And after two decades of repeated struggles with hunger, thirst, exposure, shipwreck, robberies, beatings, imprisonment, and stoning, Paul remained eager to fulfill his calling. Pretty cool. Verse 16, for I am not ashamed of the gospel. For it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. Now listen, there are multiple reasons as to why people would stay silent when it comes to the gospel. We might feel like we don't have the right words. Uh, we might care too much about what our friends think. Uh, we might be fearful of criticism. And all of those might give reason for us to feel ashamed and we think because of that, we're going to stay silent because we give in to the embarrassment. But Paul apparently, and I'm not saying he didn't struggle with any of that, because I think he did, but he didn't let it stop him. 
He was not deterred by the opposition. And he didn't seem to be disheartened by the criticism. When excavating ancient ruins in Rome, archaeologists discovered a derisive painting depicting a slave bowing down before a cross with a jackass hanging on it. And the caption reads, Aleximanus worships his God. Brutal. In a late second century letter, we read from a gentleman by the name of Celsus. He bitterly attacks Christianity. He says, of the Christians, we see them in their houses, wool dressers, cobblers, and fullers. A fuller was a person who washed clothes. Uh, the most uneducated and vulgar. He par- uh, compared Christians to a, a swarm of bats, ants crawling in their nests, or to frogs holding a symposium around a swamp, or to worms cowering in the muck. <laughs> so certainly there were cultural forces against the gospel then, and we could say it's the same now, right? Paul was imprisoned in Philippi, chased out of Thessalonica, smuggled out of Damascus and Berea, laughed at in Athens, considered a fool in Corinth, declared a blasphemer and lawbreaker in Jerusalem. He was stoned and left for dead in Lystra. Some pagans during Paul's day branded Christianity as atheism because it believed in only one God. And they said it was cannibalistic, misunderstanding the meaning of the Lord's Supper. And in the face of all of that, Paul was not ashamed. You know, I was not a star athlete in high school. I was not a very popular guy. I struggled with self-image like every high school kid does. I wanted to be popular. But when I came to Christ in the ninth grade, I also wanted to walk as a Christian. Not perfectly, but I felt like it was important to communicate the gospel. Started a Bible study in our high school, and we saw kids come to Christ in high school. It was really pretty cool. Um, And we did some radical things. But I can remember when the announcements were given in the morning, and the whole school would hear these announcements. There's a high school of about 2,000 kids. And, you know, they'd give them multiplicity of different announcements, and they would say, and there's a Bible study by Kevin Short, you know, in such and such a room. And I remember just thinking, oh, why, why couldn't they say I'm a star athlete or something? And, and inside, I felt this kind of, you know, just not cool enough. I'm not saying it stopped me, but I'm just trying to be honest with you that it was, it was difficult, especially in those early years. But I kept pressing on. And I was thinking recently, why would I continue to do that knowing that I felt those feelings and I remember what it was? Is that I can remember having 
already seeing kids come to Christ or personally leading kids to Christ, even while in high school, it was like, wow, that's, that's really cool. And I, I'd like to see more of that. Uh, several years ago, Janet and I uh, got a call from a guy that was on our basketball team. And I hadn't talked to him in decades. Uh, and he says, hey, my wife and I are coming through St. Louis. Do you guys live near St. Louis? And I go, well, you know, we could make it there. Um, and uh, he wanted to have lunch together. So we met with he and his wife, and he began to just thank me for inviting him to a camp for basketball players where the gospel is given. He came to Christ, and he said, um, I've never been the same. Yeah, I just, I just want to thank you for that. Now, let me ask you this. Was that worth the embarrassment that I felt in high school? I mean, how do you, how do you um, value that? Yeah. The point is, the gospel is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. The only way there is salvation is because of the gospel and because of God's movement. It's God working in the life of Christ who died, was buried, and rose again. And it's also seen in the Holy Spirit drawing people to him like he drew my mother and like he was speaking to my father in his last hours. It's the operation of God acting in the, in the person giving the gospel and the person receiving the gospel. It's, it's his initiative and work. In 1 Corinthians 1.18, Paul says, for those being saved, it's the power of God. And in verse 24, but to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. Listen, if you or I had the cure for cancer, okay, all kinds of cancer, right, what would, be, what would you do with that? I mean, I, I would go to the hospital, to the cancer ward, and I would give everybody the cure. I'd want to see them walk out of that place where they were formerly terminally, terminally ill. Now they're healed. That would be awesome. Would I care about criticism? Would I care about people who maybe didn't believe me? I just would want to see people healed, right? Paul was energized and unconcerned with human opinions in terms of it stopping him from giving the gospel. I'm not saying it didn't impact him, didn't hurt him, but it, the gospel's too powerful, too compelling to disregard. The need of salvation may not be recognized by many, but that doesn't change the power of the gospel. It's foolishness and a stumbling block to some. And part of it is because the naked reality of the gospel, it's it's humility, it's crucifixion, it's blood, it's confessing your self-righteousness 
That doesn't play well. The culture doesn't prize crucifixion and humility or Christ's lordship. It doesn't, doesn't prize that. But the need is still acute. Kent Hughes wrote this, Rome was the city of the world. Her law was the foundation for all that followed. Her art was borrowed but appreciated. Her military system was the wonder of the world. Yet, how pitiless she was. Amid all the ruins of her cities, we find none of a hospital, none of an orphan school in an age that made many orphans. The pious aspirations and efforts of individuals never seemed to have touched the conscience of the people. Rome had no conscience. She was a lustful, devouring beast, made more bestial by her intelligence and splendor. End quote. Hmm. I think we could also point to a desperate need in our country, couldn't you? And listen, my point is not to get down on our culture, but to say it just shows us of the need. Okay? I mean, I, I look at the I look at the problems in, with, uh, between the races. I look at the problems in, in, in politics and just so many things that you could point to. What is our hope? I can only think of the gospel. Now, you know, I may not see everyone come to Christ, but I can see those that are in front of me. I, I can tell them about it. God has not made me responsible for all of America, but he's made me responsible with the people within my purview that I can love. And I'm not saying I have to just deposit information to everyone I meet, but I mean, I I have a relationship, I have a, a caring about their soul. Desperate need. Why is it that Paul told the Corinthians that he came to them in weakness and fear and much trembling? I think it's because the gospel undermines self-righteousness. It it condemns self-indulgence. I mean, the gospel truthfully presented arouses opposition and often contempt. It didn't stop him, but he was human, right? Right? He still expected some obstacles, but it didn't stop him. Jeffrey Wilson wrote, The unpopularity of a crucified Christ has prompted many to present a message which is more palatable to the unbeliever. But the removal of the offense of the cross always renders the message ineffective. See, I think what you have in America, in the evangelical church, and Listen, I'm not pointing fingers. I'm just saying, when you present a gospel where we try to make it attractive, what are you going? What kind of convert are you going to have? People often tube out, right? There's no discipleship in the church. We get a lot of decisions, but the church is a mile wide and an inch deep. I don't think that's what. The bride of Christ is supposed to be. Again, I'm not saying we do it better than everybody else. 
I'm just trying to make sure we're focused on the bullseye. Verse 6 ends with to the Jew first and then to the Greek. Three brief points about what I think Paul is saying. Why to the Jew first? Well, one is because God gave the Jewish people the scriptures. Two is that the Messiah came through the Jewish lineage. And Israel will continue to play a role in the prophetic picture, which makes, I think, the recent war with Hamas and Hezbollah all the more riveting. Jesus said to the woman from Samaria in John 4 that salvation is from where? The Jews. So it's like the Jews are going to be the first in line to hear the gospel. Now, why would Paul again use that term Greek? when he's writing to the Romans. Let's remind ourselves again of the point I made earlier. It's not a reference to race or to people or those native to Greece. But when Alexander the Great was kind of on his conquering tour 400 years before Paul, he spread the Greek language and culture around the world to which the Romans were recipients. Verse 17, For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. How is the righteousness of God revealed in the gospel? Well, God made sinners right with himself by bestowing on them a righteousness that was not of their own. Paul wrote to the Corinthians, For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. So Christ took upon himself our sin so that the penalty of our sin could be paid by Christ and then God's righteousness is given or imputed to us on our account. And it gives the Father an opportunity to set us free from judgment while upholding his righteous character. I am fully known, and he fully loves me. (laughs) I mean, really? Do you know the skeletons in my closet? Do you realize the thoughts that go through my head, you might be saying to yourself, but God fully knows you and fully Loves you. Now that is pretty cool. (laughs) Anyone who receives Christ by faith will enjoy righteousness imputed to him, and then we're ready for this relationship with God. God's righteousness also denotes his loyalty to his covenant promises in the salvation of his people. Israel was not righteous. Israel continually broke the Old Testament law, okay? Could not do it, right? We are not righteous in and of ourselves. We're not righteous in our works. I don't care how long you've gone to church. Without Christ, none of us are righteous. We all fail in our ability to live up to God's standard, and we deserve punishment for our sin. 
What has God done? He had to do something because the people could not live up to it. Ezekiel eleven nineteen, And I will give them one heart and a new spirit I will put within them. I will remove the heart of stone from their flesh and give them a heart of flesh. God had to do heart surgery on each of us. God had to change us from the inside out and give us his spirits. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. This is all part of the plan of being a recipient of the Abrahamic covenant, which God initially gave to the Jews, and now we are grafted in. Galatians 3.29 says, And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. So what was that Abrahamic covenant? First of all, it was God promising his people that he would unconditionally love them and that he would bless them. Okay? Now, Galatians is very plain about this. There's only one party in this covenant, and that's God. You say, well, no, wait, 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 wait. Didn't they break the covenant? Well, yeah, they, they did. That was the Mosaic covenant. The Abrahamic covenant is different. Mosaic covenant says you do this, you obey, you'll get good things. You disobey, uh, you're going to see consequences. The Abrahamic covenant is you're my people, fully known, fully loved. And I'm going to love you, I'm going to be in relationship with you, and they rejected that. And so what has happened now? God says, well, I'm going to graft in some other people. That's us. So he's kept his promise with his people. And in doing so, he has demonstrated his covenant faithfulness and his righteousness. Now, by speaking of the, the responses as faith for faith, I think he's just talking about the ongoing conviction that these things are true for me now. I don't just accept Christ now and forget the whole economy of the gospel. I continue to abide in Christ. I continue to understand and live with his grace, which I need daily. I continue to trust God to love me and provide for me in Christ. I continue to see my past, present, and future hidden in Christ. I continue to see my, my security and significance and safety in Christ. If you want to do a great study, do this. Study all the times in the New Testament where the Bible talks about being in Christ and then also about Christ in you. It's an amazing study. You learn that your identity is rooted in our relationship with Christ, that we are the beloved of God. It's amazing. This is not because I signed up to follow some cultural code. This is not so I can get some external trappings. The evidence of the righteousness of God being imputed to us is our faith. See, we, we demonstrate that when we face sickness or, or, or death. There are setbacks and we continue to trust Christ. 
We see it when we continue to love our mate when they let us down. Right? We see it with continued fidelity to Christ when opposition occurs. I think of Julie. Her life was a true testimony of faith. And I, I think of, you know, her in our living room with Mike, and we laid hands on her and the elders, and we anointed her with oil. We're, we're praying for healing. Didn't happen. Does that mean we didn't have faith? No, I think, I think God blessed her with something just as glorious. I mean, listen, he could have healed her, and that would have been wonderful. And, he, and God does that, and we should pray for that. But when he doesn't, it's an amazing thing to see somebody continue to be faithful to God like Julie was, faithful to her husband, her kids, her fidelity to Christ. That is just as glorious, just as wonderful to witness. And when you see it up close and personal, you realize, wow, that's the gospel. That's amazing. God chose her to live with enduring faithfulness. No less beautiful, no less glorious. Listen, this passage in Romans is really the heart of the book. And the rest of the book explains its meaning, right? It talks about the meaning of faith, the righteousness of God, the power of the gospel. So we've got, you know, 16 chapters to go, several years to get through it. <laughs> and I am so excited to be on this journey with you in Romans. Let's pray. Thank you for listening to the Christ Community Church Podcast. 